and welcome. This is the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracing. In this series, we chat to doctors and health professionals who forged all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. This episode of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast is brought to you by Blue Gibbon. Blue Gibbon provide doctors with world-class career opportunities described as the weird and the wonderful, including large events, high-profile government departments, on remote offshore islands, in technology and corporate organisations, and much more. Relentless five-star service is guaranteed, so head over to bluegibbon.com to get in touch. That's bluegibbon, B-L-U-G-I-B-B-O-N.com. Our guest for this episode is our first international guest, actually, Dr. Hugh Harvey. Um, I spoke to him from his office in England uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so some of the references actually to coronavirus in this conversation might have been left a little bit behind by developing circumstances, but they're still very relevant. And it was interesting to hear his perspective on how the pandemic has impacted the UK, um, and including how he and his colleagues are actually involved in trying to help those scrambling to make PPE for health professionals, um, especially early on uh, when there were severe shortages of that kind of equipment. Hugh is a radiologist who turned his clinical experience into a career as a health technology advisor with a, a focus on leveraging big data and artificial intelligence. And in this chat, you'll hear all about that, how he achieved uh, that career that he's been building um, through being involved in various projects, uh, roles that he's taken on, um, and uh, including some startups. He's got some really great infam- uh, advice at the end of this conversation as well as to... to some of the pitfalls and things to avoid if you or things to be awake to, I guess, uh, more importantly, if you are looking and in getting into that kind of a field. Uh, before we get to that one, just a quick reminder that the CCIM conference, which was scheduled to be happening in June, has of course been postponed to the 12th and 13th of December, will be taking place at the Novotel Sydney Brighton Beach. If you've not already registered for that one, you can still do so. Head over to creativecareersinmedicine.com. Follow the links to the events page. While you're there, if you're not already, you can also register to be a member of CCIM and follow the links there too from the homepage uh, to read about all the member benefits you can get, including discounted member fees if you bundle your membership with your CCIM 2020 conference ticket. Again, that's all at creativecareersinmedicine.com. So with all of that now out of the way, here it is, my conversation with Dr. Hugh Harvey. All right, Dr. Hugh Harvey, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, obviously, you're talking to me from the UK. Um, I'm interested, before we get too far, to hear um, how things have been for you and your colleagues with the impact of COVID-19. Um, obviously, it's a friend of mine for most health workers. Um, and despite the spikes we're sort of seeing here now in Australia, overall, we've been quite sort of fortunate um, compared to some of the infection numbers we're seeing coming out of the UK and, and other places in Europe. Um, obviously like all countries responding to this crisis, there's been a lot to learn and a lot of very fast um, adaptation, but still um, obviously a lot of cases to deal with. Can you can you talk us through what it's been like on the ground and for how you've been impacted? Because I understand, like, obviously radiologists are going to be um, one of those at the front of the, front of the, uh, front of the line. Yeah, so obviously it's a global situation, um, but it's differing slightly per country. Some countries like New Zealand appear to be making a success of it and Others like America and Brazil struggling a bit more, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, here in the UK, we were hit probably with the surge in late March. There was quite a degree of uh, panicked preparation, I think we could say, 
um, with the NHS. We built a field hospital in London. And um, many people who've left the NHS or retired recently were seconded back into the NHS, including myself. Um, but what happened in radiology was quite interesting, actually, because there was sort of effective cancellation of, of routine imaging. So people who might have been undergoing routine scans for, for non-emergency related conditions. They were about to be cancelled, and so we actually saw a, a quite a big decrease in, in the volume of imaging studies coming through. And my radiology colleagues, who were practicing in frontline in hospitals, were saying that for a period of time, all they saw were query COVID cases, right. chest X-ray, CT, yeah, yeah. and some neurological um, associated uh, symptom, symptoms as well. Um, and I think things are now slowly returning back to a, a more normal or a new normal as people are saying yeah, yeah. Um, but I think we're, we're as yet unclear as to, as to where we're going to end up yeah because you, you what sort of um clinical work have you been doing you said obviously you things have been changing for you a little bit on the, with the onset of COVID-19 what what sort of clinical role um do you have in your workload normally so I I don't practice clinically myself anymore right but um I, I left clinical practice about four years ago to, to go into the health tech and the industry side yeah, of things. Yeah. So it hasn't really affected my personal workflow because I'm not I'm not uh, reporting cases. But um, I have many friends and colleagues who still work clinically, yeah. and they say it had a huge impact. First of all, a lot of radiologists started to work from home, something they'd never really done before. So there was a huge effort to install workstations at home. So you have to have the right type of monitors and the right internet connection and the right data connection to be able to download the scans to your, to your home. And working out those those processes and, and working practices for working from home. Mm. And I think the second thing to, to mention is that in radiology departments, it's, radiologists don't just sit in a room and look at scans. We, we take part in multidisciplinary meetings. We yeah form ultrasounds on patients ourselves. So there was disruption to the, the the opportunities for physical contact with both colleagues and patients as well. That's a lot of adaptation we've been talking about. I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about a couple of the articles and initiatives that Hardin have, have your, your company Hardin Health has done during this pandemic in a second, just while we're on the topic. But putting your expert, where, you've, where you you know, you know guys have been able to put your expert knowledge and expertise in, into some really great applications. But could you just, um, obviously you touched on it a little bit there, um, but could you explain a little bit more about Hardian Health and the kinds of things that you usually do when, when there's not a, a pandemic on? Sure. So, so Hardian Health, I set it up um, in 2018 with a co-founder of mine, Dr. Roshana Mason. And we've both experienced outside of clinical practice in getting health technology to market. So I've worked in two startups here in the UK, um, getting regulatory approval for a couple of um, health technology devices. And Roshan and my co-founders worked uh, for the Department of International Trade in Washington as part of the, the UK embassy and has been helping UK technology um, find a marketplace within, within the US healthcare system. And we set up Hardin to, to help consult for, for startups, early stage to mid-stage, to help them with their strategy, but also to provide the professional services that these companies need in terms of IP and patent protection, uh, regulatory approval processes, um, scientific evidence generation, science writing. Um, and now we're expanding also into um, health economics and financing as well. So we help um, with startups with their pitch decks and, and investor relations and setting up their, their series funding rounds as well. 
That's what we do on a normal day. That's quite a wide gamut, though. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's fairly wide, um, but all of these things are necessary. Getting health set to market is a bit of a puzzle. Yeah. And you need you need several factors. You don't just need clever technology. You, that's kind of just the starting point, really. You need you need to generate the evidence, get the right clearances, make sure that your intellectual property is protected, and then you need, then you need to generate some kind of economic argument or framework to show that it's actually beneficial and it has a return on investment for the healthcare systems that, that want to purchase it. One of the ones that I was alluding to a moment ago was. Um... Uh, it was in one of the articles I was, I was p- picking up on your blog that, that came out back in April and um, was when you were specifically giving advice to, uh, to you know, public advice out to organisations like schools or charities, um, organisations uh, like that um, around, you know, this is, obviously there was this wave of, of people desperately trying to support health workers by making and supplying sort of um, PP face, face shields through whether it was 3D printing or other means. Um, and you guys were putting out specific advice to help people be able to do that. What was? Can you talk me through sort of what um, what prompted that? What the response was like? Because I saw obviously reading through some of the, the responses you were getting, there was there seemed to be some confusion around you know, safety regulations and, and the legal side of things, especially with um, you know some of those regulations being updated as we learn more about um, things and, 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 and regulators responded to what people were doing to try and keep it safe for everyone. Did you get much feedback from from the, the from the people that you were trying to help? Yes, yes, we did. So, yeah, we, we, are, we published a couple of blogs on our website with um, advice pointing out the fact that if you are claiming to be able to produce personal protective equipment or PPE mm. for the purposes of, of clinical use, then you need to at least ensure some basic safety requirements. Um, and so we scoured what the updated guidance was that was coming out from the regulators, and we provided a sort of step-by-step checklist that, that amateur um, 3D printers and people trying to make these kind of face shields and visors might want to adhere to. And for the UK ones, we helped them with a sort of templated letter they could write to the local regulatory body to ask for what's known as a derogation, which means an exemption from from the normal due diligence processes around clearing devices to be used in healthcare situations. And we had several, you know, successful groups, so amateur groups who were sort of building makeshift factories in schools, et cetera, in um, allowing them to supply homemade or makeshift PPE to, to the clinical front line. So that was really driven by our in-house regulatory consultant. He's got 25 years' experience in, in medical devices, not just in tech, not just in sort of software technology, but also in hardware and engineered products. Mm. And, um, so that's the sort of pro bono work that, that we did sort of during the pandemic. And that was, you know, incredibly satisfying to see that you know, the small part that we played in explaining what can be quite a complex regulatory landscape, explaining that to amateurs and helping them through those steps to actually get, you know, their, their homemade um, products into the hands of clinicians was was really satisfying. I can't imagine how satisfying. Did you get to see any any of the um the the, the finished products um out in the out in the real world? Uh, not personally. <laughs> I've already left the house in the past few months, but we've definitely had a few a few photos of. Boxes and boxes of of um, exempted products ready for delivery, and I've seen those photos. And it's always good to get the feedback from, from the people who've updated um, their process in accordance with the regulations. And of course, the regulations change and shift over time. You know, no one expected this pandemic at the start of the year. So, mm. you know, things like the derogation uh, program, which we have here in the UK, 
it was, was quite new in terms of regulatory processes. And of course, the regulatory bodies themselves were absolutely flooded with people trying to quickly get new devices onto the market. So yeah. um, it, it, I think it's, it's, it shows that if you have a little bit of expert knowledge, you can take this step by step and do it quite simply and effectively if you just know exactly which parts of the regulations you need to stick to and, and adhere to. So the double-edged sword of it, though, because one of the other um, one of the things that you you were highlighting um, at the same time was this um, alongside of some of the, the startups and med tech entrepreneurs that you that you work with, you're also seeing um, you know a, a rise in the number of unsolicited contacts from whether it's uh, health equipment and technology makers, um, suppliers. Uh, obviously, as you were saying, the there was a lot of shortages going on. People were sort of scrambling to come up with, with um, whether it was novel solutions to problems or, or, or whatever it was. Um, I just wondered, what, aside from the general frustrations associated with spam, what kind of risks does it was it, does it um, present to companies like yours and those that you work with? You know, it seems like an especially good opportunity for some, you know, uh, disreputable um, dealers to, to try and take advantage of the concern out there, the the, the shortages that are going on, and and um, and. The, the problems that are being experienced and to try and sort of make a buck and doing so sort of undermine the reputation and trustworthiness of, of the whole med tech industry. Yeah, I mean, whenever there's an opportunity, there's there's always going to be what I call cowboys coming into the arena. Um, you know, so as soon as, you know, there's high demand for, for a product, um, there'll be people who are coming in and offering, you know, quite dodgy and often unfit for purpose products. Yeah. Um, and you can't really get away with that in healthcare because ultimately people could, could die. You don't want people using faulty um, personal protective equipment, especially if these are frontline workers, because if yeah. they get ill and they have to go off work, that, that has a massive downstream effect on the capacity of the healthcare system. So, yes, I think you know, everybody in healthcare experienced a spate of spam or, or potentially fraudulent email from, from all sorts of companies around the world claiming they had lots of PPE to be able to send over. If you were just kindly filling the form and send a deposit, they would obviously fulfill their requirement for you. And you know, none of these were verifiable or trustworthy, and very few mentioned the fact that they had appropriate regulatory clearances and had done the, you know, done the basics in terms of safety. And you know where com- companies like, like ours sort of come in is to help sort out that, that the wheat from the chaff. Um, and typically, we do this in, in the health technology sector. So we applied this expertise during COVID to to the PPE um, market as well. I mean, is it about putting the brakes on? Because obviously, there, there there is this huge charge to 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 come up with uh, whether it's PPE or, or something broader than that, or more you know acutely clinical in in, in scope, but. There's a lot of so many people like sort of pushing to do as much as they can, whether it's applying medical technologies and new treatments to try and combat what we're dealing with. How much of an issue is that at the moment? Like, are we, you know, you mentioned you know, the term cowboys before. Um, even those with purely pure motivations who might be trying as best they can to, to work within the regulations and, and, and tick all the boxes. Um, are we seeing problems though with you know some corners being cut along the way because of um, how fast everyone's trying to work to, to make a difference? There is always that risk, um, and it's whether I guess the ultimate question is whether or not the risk is because of naivety, i.e., people weren't aware that there were basic safety requirements to fulfil, or whether they're you know being malicious and deliberately trying to profiteer from a crisis. 
And it's quite hard to separate those two. And I've seen a lot of very well-intended but naive groups trying to quickly supply, you know, medical-grade products to the front line. And they are just unaware that there's there's some form of safety process they need to go through. Have you had and to – sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, have you, have, you, have you had to help someone put – have you had to have that conversation with anyone to say, look, hey, here's what you're missing yes. here, maybe you need to slow down? Yes, and we do that all the time, especially with, with health technology. There's, mm. I think any time a new market opens up, people like to make extraordinary claims about what their products can do. But in healthcare, every claim that you make has to be backed up by evidence. Um, medicine is, is an evidence-based profession. You know, everything a doctor prescribes or everything a surgeon does or everything, you know, a physiotherapist or a nurse or a pharmacist does is based on evidence. We, we know it works or we know how well it works. We know what the risks are because most times in medicine, there is a risk with every drug we prescribe or every operation we do. And all those risks are weighed against their benefits. And the same goes for any new health technology or any new personal protective equipment or any new thing that needs to come into the market, is it, is it still needs to abide by the, the basic principle that there needs to be you know, basic safety requirements and there needs to be evidence that it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. Um, and there needs to be some kind of accountability for, for if it goes wrong. And that's the whole point of having a regulatory landscape around medicine. I'm sure most people would agree you wouldn't really want to take a drug unless it had been tested on someone in some way. Um, obviously, some people are happy to experiment with themselves, but personally, you know, I wouldn't want to take a new drug that had claims that had never been tested. The same kind of goes for, for any product that claims to improve care or make a diagnosis or treat a disease. It's all about generating that evidence. And obviously, evidence generation takes time. And time is not always on your side in a pandemic. And so the regulatory bodies themselves have to play this balancing game of minimizing the regulatory burden, but while ensuring that at least a minimum amount of safety um, and due diligence has gone into producing the, the products that are being put on market at pace. Just on that topic that you talk about, about bringing, you know, the, the amount of evidence and research together, your background, as we've already um, touched on, is, is in radiology. Um, but obviously you, you've then gone into research and then um, the, the, the startup world and, and, and what you're doing now with Hardy. And can you talk us through your journey um, into medicine, into radiology, and how, you know, how you wound up being involved in, you know, in the things that, that have sort of, of, of the opportunities that have come along um, since then? Sure, yeah. So I, I became a doctor, as, as most doctors do in the UK, after studying at med school. Um, and I did a few years as a junior doctor on the wards, moving around various hospitals in the south of England. And then I applied for a specialist training as a radiologist. Um, and I was attracted to that because it's a very um, technical discipline. You get to you know play with the big machines, the MRI machines and the CT scanners and things. Um, and I liked human anatomy. Um, I also like the fact that it was out of all the professions, one of the ones that was less sort of visceral in terms of coming into contact with bodily fluids and, <laughs> and so you're slightly protected from that as a radiologist. Sure. And I did my training I got, uh, and I became a consultant. Um, and when I finished my training, I applied to do a postgraduate degree, um, and I and I started doing that. And I was looking at data analysis of 
um, prostate scans, MRI scans of the prostate. And we started building some very simple algorithms to segment prostate tissue out to, to detect the areas of cancer within a prostate on the scan. And this was really around the time when, when the deep learning wave sort of kicked off. So I sort of came out of my research degree as a consultant radiologist with experience in machine learning. And then I decided to go and work in industry. So I worked at a startup in London who were applying natural language processing to, to medical um, diagnostics, making a chatbot. Um, and during that process, I got involved with the regulatory part of that of that process. Right. You know, how, how do you ensure that it's safe and effective? And working with the regulators to get it approved and cleared for use with the other public. Um, and then I went to a different startup where we were applying deep learning to um, the problem of breast cancer screening. So we're trying to detect breast cancer on screening mammograms. So most, most women have a screening mammogram every few years once they reach the age of 50. Um, and this is quite a nice little binary problem to try and solve, is there cancer or not on these mammograms? Mm -hmm. So I helped build that company up and start clinical trials and get regulatory clearance in the UK. And that was, that was the first regulatory clearance for deep learning system from the UK. Um, and then, then I set up Hardin because I realized that through both of these experiences at the startups, what these tech companies have in abundance is great technical knowledge and the ability to build great products. Mm. But there's a whole clinical side of the clinical evidence generation, the regulatory approval, and the health economics to go with it that is lacking. And now I get to advise multiple companies around the world on their strategies for these approaches. Um, and now I find it just incredibly rewarding to be able to, to work with so many tech companies um, on their journey to getting to market. Is it something you actually saw yourself that, or it sort of sounds like it naturally evolved rather than you sort of planned towards it? There was no planning whatsoever. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it was all a kind of, um, I, I guess, slightly higher risk career path in that I didn't, stick with the obvious choice of being a consultant radiologist, which mm. obviously is a nice, well-paid job with set hours. I decided to take a huge pay cut and go into the crazy world of startups instead. <laughs> and that's, that's not for everybody. Um, you know, it's it's tiring and, and can be stressful and there's a lot of international travel and conferences and speaking events and all sorts of things to do. And you're kind of, being a startup, it's been explained to me I can describe it now, confirm it as it's a bit like jumping off a cliff and trying to build the aeroplane um, on the way down. Wow. And hoping that you've built enough of it that you, you can get lift off before you hit the ground. <laughs> um, and if that kind of risk and excitement appeals to you, then, then it's always recommended. Um, but it's certainly not for everybody. Um, but I took that risk, and I, and I think now. Now, now that I've done sort of five years in startups and now I'm running my own consultancy, it feels like it's paid off. And there are very few clinicians that I know of that, that have that, that breadth of experience, having worked on the front line, having been in academia, and having been in industry. For sure. Um, so I try and bring all of my experiences together and offer that, that advice to, to my customers and clients now. That experience and, and a lot of that work that you've done and, you know, around AI and, and big data, um, deep learning, that... Was that, that what led to the opportunities to, to work, you know, things like working with the, the Royal College of Radiologists? Because I, I speak to, to many doctors on this podcast about 
you know, people who, who might take on role, you know, opportunities like, like that and um, some of the ones that you've said already and we've discussed already, um, that takes that mindset to say yes to things and, you know, or say yes to opportunities when they pop up. Was that was that part of it? or Because um, it must have been like quite a wonderful opportunity or chance to be to be um, uh, sort of headhunted or picked out by one of the peak bodies of your prof- profession to make some important progress. Yeah, so so yes, I'm, I'm quite lucky actually. I got invited to to join the Royal College of Radiologists AI committee, um, and I was sat on that panel for, for two years. And it was, you know, good to be part of a group of experts and leaders in the field talking about artificial intelligence and radiology. I got asked to uh, co-chair a a big government review on the impact of future health technology on on the UK and the NHS, and that was led by Professor. Eric Topol, who was invited to come over from America to, to run that review. And that was a, sort of a period of a year's work uh, as well. Mm. And now I sit on the special interest group as well at the British Institute of Radiologists. And I also got awarded an honorary research fellowship at University College London at the Department of Cognitive um, Neurosciences. So I still maintain some sort of academic tenure in yeah. some form. So I'm the kind of person, if a project sounds exciting, I will usually say yes. And I think by saying yes and creating opportunities for yourself, you give your career path more more of an ability to, to, to vary and meander, which I think creates a more exciting and interesting life than just doing one thing uh, in perpetuity. In but I, I'm not sure that that's suitable for everybody. Some people like that, 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 that nice, defined career path. I never... Uh, subscribe to that ethos and uh, decided to go and do my own thing. Um, but like I said before, it's a risk. I had, you have no idea where you're going to end up, and I still don't. Um, but for now, growing my own consultancy from just myself offering advice to now we are a team of 12 yeah. within nine months, it's been incredibly rewarding. And we hope to grow further and, and, and go international as well. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about, you know, when you say taking opportunities and things is, is your writing. Um, and this is came, I guess, with the, uh, you work with the Institute of um, Cancer Research where you were uh, ultimately awarded science writer of the year twice. And one occasion was the article, one of the best medical headlines I think I've ever read, which was teaching pigeons to spot gorillas. Um, in that article, yeah. that, that was the one where you pondered whether patients might be better served by pigeons taking over the work of radiologists. How, how did you get into writing? Um, what was your motivation? Because, Obviously, while your, your writing is definitely there to raise interesting points, and, and this one was around um, various elements of your profession and how it's perceived and people are trained and, 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 and that kind of thing. But you, your style is, is very engaging, makes makes something that could potentially otherwise be a little dull quite compelling and funny. How, how did you sort of get into writing? What was, what was the, the motivation there? It's going to sound strange, but I never considered myself a writer. <laughs> um, I always... I always thought I had a knack for explaining the boring and mundane in a way that was interesting um, and teaching. I enjoyed teaching when I was you know, practicing clinician and teaching juniors. I also had a period when I was at medical school and throughout my medical training where I did a lot of um, comedy, both I did a little bit of stand-up and a little bit of sketch show kind of comedy. And I think bringing a bit of humor into very boring and mundane topics helps break the ice. Um, and bringing humor also helps to engage an audience as well. I think sometimes 
things can be presented, especially technical things and regulatory things can be presented in very dry, cut and paste ways. And so what I like to do, and this is my general style, is just to be honest, break it down into its, its simple subcomponents and and make make a few jokes about it so the readers um, and the followers feel feel like they understand the space. And you can only joke about something when you truly understand it. Um, and everything everything that we do as a, as a as a species as humans, everything we do has has multiple nuances to it. And there's always humour in something if you if you look hard enough. Um, so while there may not be necessarily humour obvious on the on the surface, if you get to know a topic well, there'll be nuances within that, whether there be frustrations or word plays or little quirks that you can pull out. And finding those and relaying them to an audience who are unaware of them makes them feel like they're learning something, but also they enjoy learning about it. And that's kind of the process that, that I take. Um, and I guess I was just very lucky when I was at the Institute of Cancer Research. Each year they had a writing competition and I entered. And the first year I won it, I thought, brilliant, that's, that's really lovely. I got this prize. And then I won it the second year in a row. And I kind of thought, well, okay, maybe I'm okay at this writing thing. Yeah. And I carried on writing a blog. I had a blog on Medium for a while, which was quite highly subscribed. And now I run my own blog on my own website at hardinghealth.com. And we update that pretty regularly. But as I get busier, um, the blogs tend to fade out. But I've definitely <laughs> got a couple more couple more coming out in the next month to keep an eye out for those. Because you are essentially in that, you know, that there is that string in your bow where you are a, a health or a science communicator. I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to Professor Michael Kidd um, on the podcast recently. He's Professor Kidd is one of Australia's deputy chief medical officers in the Department of Health. He's a very busy guy at the moment, obviously with COVID. Um, his role involves a lot of educating, informing the public about health issues, um, especially with, um, as I say, with what's going on. We talked a little bit about the role of health communicators within the, the context of modern media and social media especially um, and how that role of, of the health or science communicators had to, to keep pace with changes in that landscape and, and how they're perceived now. And obviously part of the current media landscape is a lot of polarisation, agenda-driven um, coverage of events, bias is a huge issue and also the amount of disinformation that's out there, especially online, um, that, that can really muddy the waters. I just, given that, that uh, going back to what we are talking about at the start of the conversation, what, what we're dealing with, um, can you get your perspective on, on some of these issues? I mean, how important are science and health communicators at the moment? And do you feel it's becoming a, a, more of a struggle to cut through and really be heard and make a difference these days? So, so um, no, I do agree with you that it is that there's a need for science communication. Absolutely. Um, as we progress through the ages, things are getting more and more complicated, and science is getting more and more advanced. But there are certain facets to science which never change. In that, the way that we conduct science has to be truthful and transparent and reproducible, and those things never change, however advanced the science gets. And I think. I'm a big advocate of the, of, of the truth or, or recognizing that the truth behind things. And I really detest when people try and pull the wool over each other's eyes with bad science or fake science. Yeah. And that might not necessarily be malicious. It could again be naive and people don't truly understand the science. But um, I've always tried to communicate that there is an underlying truth and due process to science behind it, whatever you're applying it to. Um, and I think 
most science communicators would agree with that. And I think the second part to it, again, is engaging an audience on terms that doesn't infantilize them, they make them feel like they're stupid, because they're not, they're intelligent people, they're yeah. just telling them something they know, doesn't mean they're not intelligent, yeah. but, so, and engaging them, but also making them feel like you've taught them something so valuable they want to share it as well. And that's how you can scale messages um, and insight as well. Um, and I, again, going back to the point about humor, if you add humor into it, then you know, it becomes easier to relate to and understandable and a joy to share more widely yeah i guess that, 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 that gives it that shareability that because it, you know as you say it's not just it's not just i'm not absorbing information i'm actually enjoying the, the process that makes it more likely i'm actually going to um uh, keep take that on board properly and learn something from it exactly exactly so you know i when I, i'm quite active on twitter and I, I will post things like you know there'll be examples of of graphs that have been shown on on the american news and you know, if, if you can spot that the y-axis has been mislabeled in some ridiculous way, share a humorous tweet about it because yeah. you're sharing not only, you know, that there's a proper way to do graphs and people can learn about it, but there's humor and some kind of pathos in enjoying finding that, that mistake and, and, and relaying that to others. And there's things like that. And that's just one example out of many things. Um, but to keep, you know, to, to keep aware that, you know, life is short, we need to keep smiling. Um, but we also need to be mindful of the scientific truth underlying everything. I guess is yeah. my kind of mantra. Well, I was going to say, I mean, we, despite that scientific truth at the base of, of so many things, we still see serious experts, people, you know, picking their fields, spending so much time debating what are often simple scientific facts. Um, we have experts who end up wasting time proving things that we already know and have known for many years um, just because a certain prominent person may have questioned it or tried to create you know, whether it's they're trying to, 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 to do what you're you're talking about, but from a, a, a disinformation or some kind of agenda-driven place. Um, I mean, for someone like yourself who's interest, so interested in advancing the way that we understand technology and its healthcare application um, for the greater good, is, is, it's got to be frustrating when, when so much effort and time gets chewed up on this stuff. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, Going back to COVID, there's been so much pseudoscience and misinformation out there. It's it's incredibly frustrating sometimes to see it. There is there is a there is an understanding though that the effort required to debunk bad science is actually greater than the effort required to produce good science. Yeah. Uh, in the first place, and so those who are putting false or bad science out there actually have the easier job than those trying to put good science out there. And that's just an unfortunate nature of the duality of the, of the requirements of, of the evidence generation needed. And I think the second thing is, is that what we have to remember is that we live in a very um, unequal society in terms of levels of education. Um, and good science should be accessible to all, whether or not you've had that extended education or not. And being able to explain things in a, in a, in a way that a, maybe a non-traditionally trained scientist or someone um, who hasn't had the opportunities and experiences to learn you know, proper scientific methodology can understand. Um, and that's also key to, to good science communication. I think what I detest also is on social media is you see pseudo 
professionals or experts claiming things. You get this a lot, um, and you have this in various sectors. You've got the flat earthers and the anti-vaxxers and yeah. all of this. And they'll all have kind of pseudo-experts at their source. Someone who's put doctor in their title, but you're never quite sure if they actually went to medical school. Um, and will have written a paper that you're not quite sure if it was ever peer-reviewed or if it was just a preprint or yeah. a white paper they published on their own website. And it's, it's, those are the kind of things that are very tricky for proper scientists to spend the time and effort to debunk. Switching us back to to Hardian Health, obviously, as we've talked a bit about, um, you you work with a range of, of companies as as a health tech consultancy, essentially, and, and partner with those with those companies. A large part of that's obviously med tech startups, as we talked about, and you advise on all manner of things from funding to investment strategy, the nuts and bolts, things like getting ideas to market, and, and the whole gamut, really, um, and, and a whole lot of other things, as we talked about before. There are a lot of doctors out there with an increasing amount. It seems of, of great ideas about how to harness technology. You know, people who are who are like you, like you. We've spoken to uh, various other people on this podcast who've who've taken clinical experience or seen a gap in in some particular um, aspect of their field or their, the way they treat their patients and trying to um, to fill that, whether it's through technology or some other way. How obviously you've you've worked with so many people at this point. Um, what are the biggest mistakes or perhaps blind spots that, that you see with doctors or tech firms or companies or startups who approach you for assistance or, uh, assistance or advice? That's a good question. I think one of the biggest blind spots I see from doctors is that they, they, they have a lack of awareness of the need of the underlying operations needed behind building products in a company. A lot of doctors don't realize it, but the hospitals that they work in are incredibly efficient from a managerial point of view um, and the operations and planning that's gone into just allowing them to do their job and focus on the clinical aspects of what they do. And so doctors are incredibly good at you know, treating, diagnosing, and being with their patients and, and doing their clinical work. But I think what I've noticed is that they, they, they lack experience of actually working in a situation where they have to work with new processes and new underlying operational and administrative tasks. Um, and doctors seem to not do so well straight out of clinical practice. Um, and so the doctors I tend to work with or I might consider hiring are those who've actually spent a few years outside of the clinical world and working in let's call it the real world, for want of a better word, and actually have worked in, in a company. So that's kind of one blind spot that I think doctors have. Um, they come out of medicine thinking that they've got a brilliant idea, but they don't really understand how to operationalize it. And it's really simple things like, you know, proper spreadsheet management and things like this, which they maybe, you know, haven't specifically learned in their training. I know I didn't learn that at med school. I learned it in my research degree. So it's, it's things like that. The second thing is from the tech side. So one of the blind spots I see with tech companies is that they tend to focus on how how their technology um, can solve a problem. What they tend not to focus on is, is that that's only really 5% of the problem. And it's largely how do you actually deliver that to the end user? So 
I liken this to building a, a new engine for a Ferrari with your new shiny technology. And it's the best engine in the world. It's got a million pistons and it runs off the most efficient fuel and it can make a car in theory go very fast. But what they forget is that if you're trying to deploy it into a healthcare system, which is slightly archaic, monolithic, and doesn't necessarily have the technology infrastructure to deploy it into. So you built this Ferrari engine and you're trying to deploy it into the chassis of you know something from the 1950s. <laughs> and so that's a, that is a bit of an issue. And on the on the outskirts of that, you also have to make sure that you get all the compliance right, data security, GDPR, um, your regulations signed off, etc. And then you have to convince someone it's worth paying for. Right. Um, and that's probably one of the hardest pieces of the puzzle as well. So, so this is my blind spots for doctors are that they're incredibly good clinically, but maybe not so good operationally at actually running a business or a company. And the, the blind spot for tech companies is that they focus too much on the tech and less on the actual environment in which that tech is going to be deployed into. Given, given what you were just talking about, um, what advice would you give to a doctor who might be looking for ways like you have to take their clinical and expertise, you know, medical expertise and experience and apply it in new ways, um, whether it's a, as, as a health consultant or, or some other, other kind of role, whether it, you know, whether it be a startup, or, but where their expertise is going to be innovatively applied in some other way? So I'm a big believer in, uh, in the fact that you can only learn by doing. And so I said, I'm a clinician in practice to try and be a consultant, but I'm not entirely sure what they're consulting on because they've never worked outside of clinical practice. So unless you're consulting on clinical practice itself, I don't think you're qualified to, to, to write people on anything outside of that, certainly not regulatory issues or, or procurement issues, unless you've actually been involved in them. Mm. You've got to learn by doing. Um, and sometimes that means taking a risk, taking a pay cut most often. When you're entering a new sector, you can't expect to be paid your same clinical salary. Um, but certainly taking a risk. So joining another company, which is maybe slightly unknown, especially if it's a startup, you have no idea if it's going to make it or not. Um, so my advice is get real meaningful practical experience and try and you know be involved in actually driving a company or a business or a product for you know a good period of time, successful at that, then you will have learnt way more than ever well just by attending lectures or reading about it. Um, and you'll have the scars and the bruises to prove it. <laughs> it's only through those scars and bruises that you can give then proper advice to other people. Um, so I personally would not feel comfortable advising people in those two pathways without knowing I now have helped get three devices through the regulatory approval processes mm. personally. And now, since then, me more as part of the consultants. I think, and unless you've actually got that credible experience, I wouldn't recommend you go straight out into consultancy. So, in terms of doctors listening, recognize you don't leave med school and suddenly become a consultant clinician. You have to go through a period of training, and that is tough, high risk, not necessarily well paid. You've got to do lots of night shifts. Mm. But that's the same in any other sector. So don't expect to get to the top of the clinical chain and then jump to the top of someone else's chain. That happens very rarely um, in this world.
Huge thanks once again to Dr. Hugh Harvey for his time and for his patience with me. I actually had a few technical issues in setting up that call initially, um, but he was very, very good and we ended up having a really interesting chat. Uh, as I said at the top, this episode of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast was brought to you by Blue Gibbon. Blue Gibbon provide doctors with world-class career opportunities described as the weird and the wonderful, including large events, high-profile government departments, on remote offshore islands, in technology and corporate organizations, and much more. Relentless five-star service is guaranteed. So head over to bluegibbon.com to get in touch. That's bluegibbon, B-L-U-G-I-B-B-O-N.com. And before I go... Just another reminder, head over to the CCIM homepage to register for CCIM 2020 conference in December and to join up as a member and secure your member benefits. You can read more about what those packages include at creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with more episodes and interviews very soon.